11 years ago, on September 1, 2010, an environmental militant named James Lee walked into the headquarters of the global television corporation Discovery Communications in downtown Silver Spring, Maryland. Wearing a suicide vest with explosives strapped to his body and wielding a gun, Lee took three hostages and held law enforcement officials at bay for four tense hours. When negotiations failed, officers shot and killed Lee, and they did it without triggering a mass casualty event or catastrophic loss of life, despite 1,900 employees working in the building and dozens of police, fire, and other emergency personnel working in the area to resolve the crisis. For J. Thomas Manger, who was then the police chief in Montgomery County, Maryland, the incident would prove to be a pivotal moment in his career, rife with lessons learned that he now carries with him into his new role as the chief of the U.S. Capitol Police. Manger's appointment comes at a critical period in the police force's history in the wake of the January 6th insurrection by far-right supporters of President Donald J. Trump, the worst attack on the Capitol since the War of 1812. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is When It Mattered. I'm joined now by Thomas Manger, chief of the U.S. Capitol Police, who was recruited into this new role out of retirement and sworn in on July 23rd. Chief Manger has served for 42 years in policing, including more than two decades as chief of police in two of the largest and wealthiest suburbs of the National Capital Region, Montgomery County, Maryland and Fairfax County, Virginia. He now heads a police force of 1,800 sworn officers, many of whom are undergoing a crisis of confidence in their leadership and are spent and demoralized by the January 6th assaults. It's now up to Tom Manger to fix it. Chief Manger, welcome to When It Mattered. Thank you, Chitra. It's a pleasure to be with you. 42 years in policing, you are a seasoned leader and you've managed many dangerous situations prior to the James Lee hostage standoff. So why did that incident leave such an impact on you as a leader, as a police officer, and what did you learn from it? So I, I think um, one of the things that made that, uh, that event unique um, was first of all, it, it was actually, and uh, I, I didn't realize this before it was over, but the FBI told me later that this was the first uh, event where a suicide bomber had taken hostages uh, it was the first event like that in the United States. Um, and I think uh, the, while this was going on, uh, the fact that you, you did have um, a suicide bomber that, and it was a verified bomb that we had our explosive experts, you know, we, could, we actually had this uh, individual on uh, camera. And so we could see the device and my explosive experts said, yes, that is a bomb. Uh, and, uh, and, and the fact that we knew he had a, a real bomb and he had, was holding three hostages made this a very, very, uh, tense situation, made it, um, just literally a life and death situation. And while, you know, as you mentioned, it went on for four hours, um, that it may not seem like a, a long time when you have three lives in the balance, four lives, including, uh, Mr. Lee, um, it, it just, uh, it was a very intense time and uh, th there were decisions that had to be made along the way that had a great deal of risk to them. 
and I was I was thankful that, for the fact that this wasn't the first time that I had overseen a, a tense situation, but this certainly had elements that I had uh, never dealt with before. And knowing that the decisions that I was making and that, that my team was making uh, were truly life and death. And if we made the wrong decision, it could end up uh, with you know innocent people being killed. It just put tremendous pressure on all of us to get it right. And I remember as we went through that event, understanding that if we did not do the right thing, if we did not ensure that we had all the information we needed, that we could all be uh, looking for jobs the next day, at least certainly me as the, as the police chief, I knew that this was uh, something that we, we uh, there's a great deal of pressure on us to get it right. And so speaking of jobs, how did you get into policing in the first place? I'm sure there are moments like that when you're standing in an incredibly dangerous situation where, where you're thinking, and, and I'm doing this, why? You know, <laughs> It wouldn't be natural if you, if you didn't have concerns about your own safety. Why did you become a police officer? Back when I was in high school, the Watergate story was a big story in the Washington Post every day. And it was there was new information that would be on the front page of the Post every day. And I remember just being um, riveted by this story. And it seemed like it was a uh, it seemed like it was a mystery with great political intrigue that was that was going on every day. And, and you were following it by reading the paper every day. And I remember thinking to myself that this is what I wanted to do. What Woodward and Bernstein were doing was just. Um, so such important work. I wanted to be able to make a difference, to right wrongs, to to um, bring bring about justice to to uh, different situations that were unjust. And I actually first, uh, when I first began at the University of Maryland, I decided to major in journalism. I thought, uh, see, I can be a reporter and I can shine a light on on things that are wrong and help uh, get make them right. And as I uh, continued in school. I took uh, different classes and and got a little disillusioned with with journalism, and I started to think maybe I should be a social worker, that maybe I could just sort of save the world one person at a time. And then I took my first uh, criminal justice course and was really taken by um, uh, th that, and uh, I started to think about uh, being a police officer. And my, my last couple of years at the University of Maryland, I, I had uh, pretty much decided that I wanted to go in law enforcement work. And the, the good news is, is that for many folks and, 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 you know, especially young folks, they think they know what they want to do. They start a, a career and then they decide, oh, I don't like this, you know, I'll try something different. But I was so fortunate, so blessed that uh, I started as a police officer when I was 21 years old and uh, just uh, was so committed and so passionate about um, the work that uh, police officers do to help people every day, to, you know, to right those wrongs, to bring justice to, to situations that are unjust. And uh, I, it was certainly the right career for me. So here I am um, now almost 43 years later, and I'm still doing what I love and uh, I'm still as committed to, uh, to justice and to helping people as I've ever been. That's pretty extraordinary. And, and tell us a little bit about your family background, where you were born and raised and your, your family. Sure. I, I, was, um, uh, I was born and raised in Baltimore City. And um, I, I uh, have never lost my Baltimore roots. I, I'm still a big Orioles fan. And much of my family still uh, lives in the Baltimore area. 
just is just a great place to to grow up and um, had many still have many friends there. And when I was 15 years old uh, and just about to start high school, my uh, father got a job with the federal government. So we moved down to Silver Spring, Maryland, which is uh, right outside Washington, D.C. And so I spent just ended up spending the rest of my life in, in the Washington, D.C. area. I credit my parents, both of whom have, who have passed uh, at this point, but uh, I credit them with every success that I've had in life is due to the, uh, my parents. I had three brothers and sisters and the four of us just, uh, you know, were benefited from having two parents that were uh, just amazing in, in their own way, taught us life lessons that have just helped us um, through, throughout all of our life. And I watched my, my dad who, um, who never finished high school and um, yet he, you know, he served in World War II he, but and came back and and uh, started work you know working and raising a family and um, he was uh, very fortunate to get a federal government job later in his life and, and which took us to the D.C. area but just the work ethic that he displayed he he just never seemed to get tired he was always either doing things at home or doing things at work and the man never seemed to rest and I watched him and was just um, really tried to follow uh, the example that he. Uh, that he gave me and and my mother uh, even you know thinking about being raised in the in the um, 60s and 70s pretty turbulent time uh, in our country perhaps not as turbulent as we as we're dealing with now but just watch listening to my mother and um, hearing her talk about how to treat people how to you know that that everyone uh, deserves to be treated with respect and dignity and she would teach us you know even no matter what person's you know lot in life uh, was that you know they were still a human being and they should be treated in a, in a certain manner and all these were lessons that I learned as a as a kid and so the first time that um, you know I I was dealing with uh, you know a, a homeless person you know, as a police officer in my job, um, those lessons that my mother taught me came back uh, just, uh, you know, in terms of, look, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I, you know, this, this, you know, don't know how this person ended up in this situation and, you know, how they got to be homeless, but, you know, they probably had a family and they deserve to be treated with, with, uh, a level of respect and dignity that we all deserve. And so these are the kinds of lessons that I think really helped me be successful in my career in terms of my ability to um, uh, talk to people and to um, just create relationships and build bridges that um, uh, not only not only helped me in, helped me in my job, but helped me in, in life in general. Especially, Chief, those kinds of skills were probably very helpful to you in this national capital region, as we call it, where there's dozens of state, local, federal agencies that have to cooperate in order to solve some of these huge crises and cases that that uh, unfold, like the James Lee case or the Beltway sniper case. Uh, you probably needed those negotiation skills that you learned from your parents. Uh, I, I they did come in handy um, and they and they continued to come in handy the the notion about the importance of of establishing relationships you know within the law enforcement agencies in this region you couldn't be more on point by saying there there are just dozens of different uh, state local federal law enforcement agencies in the dc area 
And one of the things that I learned back in, uh, I think it was around 1998, because it, 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 it occurred when Chuck Ramsey, uh, who the former um, police chief in, in Washington, D.C., former commissioner in Philadelphia, um, when Chuck Ramsey took over as the D.C. police chief uh, in 1998, I, would, I had just been appointed uh, as the acting chief in Fairfax County at the time. And we got to know each other. And Ramsey uh, reached out to um, Montgomery County, Fairfax County, Prince George's, Arlington, Alexandria, reached out to all those police departments and said, we have these uh, protests, the World Bank protests, the, the G8 summit, the, the inaugurations. And he named all these events where it really required thousands of police officers to um, provide safety and security for the community and for the protesters. And uh, he said, would you, could you send us uh, you know, 150 of your police officers to help with this event. This had never been done before. And uh, it was it was interesting that um, he came up with this idea. And, you know, I immediately said, yes, we will help. And I sent, I remember sending 150 officers. And I know all these other jurisdictions sent police officers as well. We were all sworn in. The U.S. Marshal was waiting for us um, when we got there and we all raised our right hand and, and uh, he swore us in as, as temporary U.S. Marshals so that we all would have, you know, a, a police authority in, in D.C. to help out. And we, um, there were there were events where 50, 75,000 people were rallying, marching, protesting in uh, Washington, D.C. And you had uh, just this regional uh, effort that to um, uh, to keep things in order. And it worked. And uh, this this was brand new. It was a new concept. Ramsey was the first one to 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 do something like this. And uh, we kept doing, it. I mean, every year there would be two or three events uh, typically around the region where we would all uh, chip in and help uh, the, the, uh, the lead agency. And uh, most of the time it was in Washington, DC. Uh, oftentimes it was the inauguration and you know things like that, but it was really just a, an amazing effort. And it went on for years. And that was one of the reasons that when I, um, on, on January 6th, when, I was watching in, in horror, you know, uh, what was going on at the Capitol um, as watching it on TV. I thought to myself, well, why wasn't, you know, why aren't there police officers there from, you know, the surrounding jurisdictions to help out? And of course, one of the reasons was that that the Capitol Police in their defense had no, uh, they, they knew there it was a possibility of violence. They had no uh, uh, concept that that there would be an attack on the Capitol like this. I'm not sure that anybody uh, would have would have predicted that. But um, I thought to myself, you know, if if uh, they had gotten folks together, this this you know they could have responded better and protected the Capitol better. So one of the 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 um, uh, things when I considered um, uh, taking this job, I thought to myself, we've got to go back to that game plan where when you have a big event that that is likely going to take more resources than one you know department might have that we um, have this cooperative effort from uh, all these agencies around the region so that um, you can adequately handle whatever cr the the crowd brings and uh, and that's what we're doing that's what we're trying to do now we have a couple of events that are coming up where we're asking and and getting help from uh, departments around the beltway uh, even with this uh, the um, uh, uh, the uh, bomb threat that we had 
th this previous week, we had the Metropolitan Police Department from D.C. We had the Supreme Court Police, the FBI, um, U.S. Park Police. I mean, it was just a team effort. And uh, the, the, one of the things that, that really works well in Washington, D.C. area is the cooperation between law enforcement. And I, I um, believed in that back, uh, you know, over 20 years ago, and, and it still works well today. Yeah, except on January 6th, as you mentioned, right? I mean, everything fell apart and these poor Capitol Police officers were sitting ducks, you know? And I know there's been some reporting to the fact that there had been plenty of intelligence, uh, you know? And of course, there were all these, there's nonstop coverage of the news where you saw President Trump, former President Trump, kind of egging on these people. And, and then you saw these masses gathering and it just seemed like these poor officers were absolute sitting ducks. They didn't have the equipment. They didn't have the attitude even. They were pretty casual if you saw those early hours unfolding in, in their interaction with these people. And obviously in the in the early hours, it didn't look as threatening as, and then it completely got out of control very, very quickly. How is it possible that in a region with this much cooperation, hundreds of officers, that that even could have taken place without that massive presence, you know? It's just, mind-boggling to me. Do you, have you found the answer since you've taken office? I, I think I have. I mean, what, you know, there, there were a number of things that um, the Capitol Police, uh, where they fell short. The Capitol Police Department is a good police department. They were a good police department on January 5th. They're a good police department today. No police department is perfect. And the, and the, the Capitol Police certainly fell short on that day. There have been lots of reports done, and I think if you look at the recommendations that have come out in so many of the Inspector General reports and um, and General Honoré's report, you can see, you can start to see some of the areas where the, the police department needed to improve. So you can point directly to, um, you know, the, the, uh, that officers didn't have the equipment that they needed. Uh, they certainly didn't have the, the staffing that they needed. And, you know, there was intelligence that, um, Perhaps they, you know, might have uh, changed their posture some, but to be honest, I mean, uh, there was certainly intelligence that indicated there there could easily be violence, that there would be violence, but again, there's a difference between ha dealing with a violent protest and dealing with with an attack like we saw on January 6th. And frankly, and people, you know, folks can say that the, you know, that uh, can point the the finger of, uh, and and blame a lot of different people and a lot of different things, but uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, this happened because no one believed that there would be an attack like we saw on January 6th. Now, the lesson learned, of course, is that you, we have to be prepared for something like that. And, and going forward, we absolutely will be. But do you have, the, you know, I, I feel like there is, there needs to be more of a sense of outrage on behalf of these police officers, more, you know, more outrage calling for more equipment and resources. You look at the size of that building, and if you saw the number of officers on the steps, you know, I mean, clearly you need more manpower and more equipment. And I'm like, where is the sense of outrage from members of Congress? You know, where are people rallying on behalf of these officers, watching them getting beaten and tear gassed and overwhelmed with brutal force? You know, I'm, I'm curious where you were. I know you were retired at the time, where you were when you saw this happen and whether those were your thoughts as well. I, uh, Chitra, I was, it was breaking my heart. I was at home. I was absolutely riveted to the TV. I was, uh, there were times when I was close to tears. Um, watching these officers get assaulted and overrun, watching our capital 
being attacked like that. It was just, um, it was a, a very emotional experience. And I think it was for a lot of people. But to, to your point about, you know, where's the outrage, I will give Congress a great deal of credit. They, in fact, um, passed a, a supplemental bill with, with funding for the U.S. Capitol Police Department uh, a few weeks ago that will give us most of what we need. It had money for equipment. It had money for training. It had money for additional staffing. Um, now, look, all you can't just snap your fingers and all of a sudden hire 200 more people. So this is going to take some time to, to get to where we need to be. But we've already uh, had made made, I think, really good progress in terms of making sure that we've got the equipment, staffing that, you know, that's absolutely the, the, the biggest issue. And just the fact that, you know, we've been able to get folks from, uh, you know, even just temporarily when we need them, getting folks from other jurisdictions to come and, and work with us and train with us. Uh, but we will have, uh, for instance, the, the, we have a, an event coming up on uh, September 18th, a rally, you know, folks that are rallying for what they call justice for January 6th. These are folks that believe that the people that were arrested um, for assaulting the Capitol and for um, uh, their their actions on the 6th that have been arrested by uh, the Department of Justice, that those are now political prisoners. And so they're having a rally on September 18th. And, uh, you know, we know that um, we need to be prepared for that rally, and we will be, absolutely will be. And so there were lots of lessons learned, even in the, just in the six or seven months since January 6th, there are lessons that have been learned and there have been things that have been implemented so that we are much better prepared, much uh, than, that we're much better prepared than we were uh, on January 6th. You didn't seek out this job. They came to you and asked you to take it. Was it an immediate yes in the context of January 6th? I mean, did you know you just needed to do this? Uh, it was not an immediate yes. It there was it was a big, believe me. I I, I just said I got to think about this. I have to consider it because there were a lot of uh, competing issues in, in you know in my life. First of all, I was very happily retired. I had you know 42 years of public service as a police officer, which I was just loved my career and was so uh, just so uh, fulfilled professionally and personally with the work that I did. But I felt like, you know, I was uh, ready to to try something new. And, and um, I, I was doing consulting work and enjoying that, you know, still staying in the law enforcement field, but really helping police officers, helping police departments uh, around the country. And I was enjoying that work, much less stress and uh, wasn't the 24-7 responsibility that I had had for so many years. As the recruiters talked to me more and talked about you know, uh, pointed out the fact that I had uh, so much experience in the Washington, D.C. area, that I had been the police chief of two uh, major jurisdictions in the D.C. area, and that I had relationships with most, if not all, of the chiefs um, in this region, that it would be a good fit for me to uh, to uh, be the next Capitol Police chief. And uh, and then, as corny as it sounds, one of the, the recruiters said, your country needs you. And um, again, as corny as that sounds, that's what solidified it for me that uh, I needed to go, get back and it was time for me to serve again. And, and that's fine. I, I, I'm proud to do it. And it's been, I've been here for a month now and I am, have that same sense of, of professional and personal fulfillment for the work that I do. I'm doing this 
uh, really for the men and women of the Capitol Police Department, doing it for uh, my country. And so I'm I'm happy to be back uh, back in the game, as, as uh, some folks say. And my hope is that I can, with my experience, with those relationships, um, that I can give the uh, Capitol Police Department the help that it needs. I'm going to certainly do my best. You know, we've talked about personnel, we've talked about equipment, but the one thing I want to talk about is intelligence, right? One could argue, not just with the Capitol Police, because there's plenty of blame to spread everywhere, right? That there was over an overarching failure of intelligence in the region amongst all of the agencies, sufficient force of a conviction or communication to let the police, Capitol Police know that this was going to happen and, you know, sending troops to help them, right? There was a failure of communication and intelligence across the board. How are you going to fix the intelligence gaps in the at the Capitol Police while other agencies are dealing with, with their own failures? This is something that uh, I have to give credit to the leadership of this police department. On, on January 7th, um, they started looking at where there were failures and where they needed to improve. And they started January 7th. So by the time I got here a month ago, there had been great progress made. And it was made by, um, well, first of all, as you know, Chitra, intelligence is not an exact science. When you get information, uh, intelligence about a particular event or, or something that's, that's uh, you know, a, a trend or, or just intel about anything, you have to weigh it you have to see is it credible is it something that we you know is likely to happen is it just sort of talk you have to make really judgments about uh this this intelligence that this information that you you've gathered and just how concerning is it what should you do about it those are all judgment calls and i think that there are times when the intel analysts don't get you know, get it right every single time. And so, you know, because you don't want to overreact to everything that you hear, and you certainly don't want to underreact to something that you know. And so one of the things that we've done to improve that is we've got a lot more folks involved in our intelligence operation now. We are plugged into every place, all the uh, the fusion centers and all of the uh, federal agencies and uh, the intelligence gathering agencies. Uh, in the region, we're plugged in there. We are having daily briefings, daily calls with the with our uh, partners, and this kind of communication didn't happen as frequently as it's happening now. We have more people that are plugged into to different uh, agencies, and we're not just relying on the FBI or Homeland Security. I mean, they're still our partners and we still get great information from them, but we're just, we're not relying on other people. We have uh, stood up our own intelligence bureau and so that we can do a lot of this work ourselves as well. So we're hoping that with the work that we do, with the work that, uh, you know, with our partner agencies that we're communicating with daily, that there won't be any failures in either intelligence or in communication, because we both uh, we've addressed both of those things. And again, I got here, and when I saw what we were doing, I thought, well, this is, you know, this is exactly what we should be doing. So we're going to strengthen it even more, and we have some ideas to uh, on how to do that. But I think this is where the the Capitol Police Department, uh, you know, looked at what occurred on the sixth and immediately started to improve those uh, improve in those areas. 
It's kind of interesting what you're saying about setting up your own uh, sort of intelligence capabilities. It's very similar to what uh, the New York Police Department, NYPD, did after the 9-11 attacks when they decided they didn't want to rely on the FBI and other agencies anymore, and they have created a pretty phenomenal uh, intelligence capability. And, and now they're all over the world, in fact, you know, keeping an eye on on threats that might affect New York City. And it sounds like the Capitol Police may have come to that similar decision on having to be independent in terms of the intelligence gathering capabilities. So I, we, I would not say we're as robust as NYPD, but just as you uh, described, it's amazing. And this was, this, um, uh, you know, happened probably 10 or 15 years ago when NYPD decided we don't want to be dependent on our federal partners. And that's not to say that they didn't have confidence in what the FBI and other agencies were doing. It's just that they said, you know, we are we have the capability and we think it's important because New York uh, was such a, a an area where, you know, there could be target for, for terrorism that they wanted to, to do even more. And I guess that's in a, in a smaller way, that's what we're trying to do. And, you know, one of the unique aspects of the U.S. Capitol Police, you know, there, as you know, Chitra, there's 18,000 police departments in this country, but there's only one police department, only one, that uh, protects the capital of the United States and protects the members of Congress. And so we do have some unique responsibilities. And uh, when we look at um, the threats that uh, we are that we get associated with the folks that we're we have the responsibility for protecting. Uh, it's important for us to have our own capability to investigate those threats, to to collect the intelligence about those threats. You know, to, uh, and um, yes, we work with other agencies as well. But because we have this responsibility to protect these folks, um, we just thought it'd be better for us to take a, go a step further and create this standalone capability to do the work. You know, involving the threats against Congress uh, and make sure that we it was getting done the way we believed it needed to be done. We still, and I, when I say standalone, I don't mean we're not working with other agencies. We absolutely are. We continue to work with law enforcement agencies all over the country. When when a member of Congress goes back to their home state and you know, um, we, we're still concerned about their security. And so we work with those local jurisdictions to ensure uh, safety and security as best we can. But um, we, just, uh, we just felt that because of these unique responsibilities that we have and because of just how divisive our country is now that it was important that we step up the work that we were doing to ensure everybody's safety and security at the capitol complex i'm curious also to know how you're wrapping your arms around this sprawling investigation of what happened on january 6th it's the largest most complex investigation uh, in the history of the Justice Department, you know, they've identified hundreds of people. There have been like more, nearly 600 defendants arrested, more than 200 indicted by a grand jury, more than 50 charged with dangerous force and use of a, a danger, deadly weapon. And, and there's hundreds more yet to be identified. Uh, how, how are you keeping tabs of what's going on on that front? So we get briefed by the FBI and Department of Justice um, fairly regularly um, on these investigations. I think that these arrests are, not only are they are they just, but I believe that they are will act as the biggest deterrent of anything to stop people from 
attacking the Capitol like this again. Uh, when you look at what's occurring in, in Portland and some other cities around the country, you just see how people's uh, political differences uh, lead to uh, lead to violence so often. And, you know, I, I, I'm not I'm not naive, but I, I don't think we had as much of that in years past as we're seeing today. And so uh, the fact that these arrests are being made, um, these cases are being prosecuted, send the message that we're not going to tolerate that kind of lawlessness, that while, while we all can, can certainly are entitled to have um, political differences, and we're certainly entitled to our uh, First Amendment right of free speech, that we should be more civil in our discourse and more civil in our, our disagreements, um, and that when these disagreements cross the line into criminal behavior, that it's not going to be tolerated. So, um, so I think it's what the investigations um, that are being done are tremendously important, and I know they're important to the men and women of the Capitol Police Department because we were um, assaulted and just attacked in a way that no one ever expected. And so the fact that uh, justice being done in those cases, I think, is is profoundly important. And I know that my uh, the men and women uh, of the Capitol Police Department are appreciative of the FBI's efforts and DOJ's efforts to uh, to go after these folks. Yeah. And, and that leads right into my next question, which was, you know, you've got a lot on your plate because of what the officers went through that day. Right. There's as I mentioned in the intro, there's a crisis of confidence in the leadership team. They are scarred with physical, emotional, and psychological impact of what happened to them. Uh, you know, you've had, what, more than 100 of the 140 police officers who were wounded that day. I think 81 were Capitol Police officers. You had one officer who had a fatal stroke and died when responding to the attacks. And you had two suicides, right? One Capitol Police, one D.C. Police. And I think you have more than 70 police officers who have retired, even without going having future jobs in mind you've got a lot on your plate what are your top priorities and how do you deal with this kind of emotional consequence uh, the PTSD that comes from being attacked the way they were that day so that's a that's it's a real difficult challenge but we're doing a couple of things one we realized early on that we did not have the um, employee assistance programs in place to deal with this level of trauma and uh, and to to build the resiliency that we need to build in our officers who who go through incidents like this so we've spent a lot of time and we're getting uh, we're getting funding as well which again I, I'm so appreciative of um, to stand up a uh, wellness program for our officers and this is mental health wellness it's physical wellness it's uh, uh, resilient just building resiliency and there, there are uh, wonderful programs in police departments all over the country, but we're and we're going to uh, uh, pattern ourselves after some of those, uh, some of the best programs in the country to make sure that our, our officers have a place to go. They have a, a sympathetic ear, a, a knowledgeable sympathetic ear to listen to them, and that we can provide them support and assistance and uh, whatever they need so that they can feel like they can come back to work, have the support that they need. If they need to talk to somebody, there's gonna be folks there that they can talk to confidentially. Um, but again, just providing that uh, support, building that resiliency is so important. You know, there, there's also one of the things that I've done since I've been here 
is um, I, I have a lot of meetings all over the complex and there's, you know, there's all the House buildings, all the Senate buildings, and then there's the Capitol itself, the Library of Congress, all of which are part of uh, our, our responsibility to protect. And so I have a lot of different meetings in, in different locations, and I purposefully am walking to all of those. Um, police headquarters is a couple of blocks away from the Capitol, and I'm purposely walking to all of those so that I can stop talk to um, officers uh, standing on posts, that I can talk to officers at the different checkpoints. Um, and I've, I've probably talked to a few hundred officers by now, and I've gotten an earful about what, um, not only what uh, occurred on January 6th and how it impacted them, but just, you know, their thoughts about the job in general. I, you know, it, it's, it's always a good thing for a boss to ask somebody, what's the worst thing about working here? Um, you know, you, you, you hope you know what the best thing about working in a place, but you ask them, what's the worst thing about working here? And you can get a real, real earful about um, some of the things that bother these men and women, talk to the, the sworn officers, talk to the civilian employees here. And so I, I'm starting to get and, and certainly uh, quickly started to hear some themes about things that I could do as the chief to make this a better place for them. And in one, you know, one of the issues, one of the big issues was, um, you know, we're so, so short staffed because just because of the, all those things you mentioned earlier about the retirements and folks being hurt. Um, so all of a sudden we had this, this crisis in staffing and, you know, when you hold an officer over on their shift, um, you know, they might like, the, you know, you know, it's great to get a little bit of overtime money, but, you know, at some point you say, you know what, I'm tired of working. I want to get a day off. I'm tired of working. I want to go be home and, you know, spend time with my family. And so you really got to be careful that uh, you don't uh, burn these officers out because you j they're just going to decide that, to go work somewhere else um, if they're getting burnt out on this job. So we've got some strategies in place to not only provide them with the support that they need, but to see if we can increase the staffing, you know, with some temporary measures so that officers can get the days off that they that they want and and they aren't being held over on their shifts every day. Uh, we can do that. I think that's going to help uh, in our recovery and help the officers heal, uh, you know, heal themselves uh, as we move forward. One last question on January 6th, which is we talked about the external intelligence threat, but all a police agencies have to now confront, and even the U.S. military, the internal threat of white nationalism, you know, extremism within the force. Uh, and how are you? How are you dealing with filling those intelligence gaps? I know it's a difficult issue to raise with rank and file, and to be able to investigate. But something that must be done, right? It is, um, and we actually um, had, and there was there was a great deal of publicity about. Uh, Capitol Police officers having their picture taken with some of the uh, rioters and having, uh, you know, uh, an officer who was wearing a, a MAGA hat, you know, all those kinds of things. And all of those cases have been investigated. Most of, most of them were investigated and, and dealt with before I got here. But I'm, I have a few of them that I'm still dealing with. And um, a number of those cases, well, it sounded bad because I think there were 30 some of those cases. Um, most of them turned out to not be anything of concern just because an officer was standing there and somebody decides to, you know, turn around and take a picture of themselves with the officer doesn't mean the officer was posing for a picture. They were just, you know, they were just standing there when this individual decided to have, I guess, take a selfie of, of himself and, and an officer. You know, there were some cases like that, but we had to look at every single one of them to determine 
were these officers upholding uh, their responsibility, upholding the mission of the department, upholding their oath of office? And so to, uh, to the extent that we found officers that did not, uh, we've dealt with that. Uh, fortunately, it was very, very few. But probably the, one of the most important things that a police chief can do is to make sure that you're hiring the right people for the job in the first place. Not everyone is suited to be a police officer. Not everyone has the personality, has the integrity, has the, the, the empathy, the spirit for public service. Not, not everybody has that. And that's fine. I mean, we're, human beings are very different. But, you know, you want to look for someone that has the traits that um, typically would, would lead someone to believe that they would be a good police officer. I, you know, I can train somebody how to do police work. I can't train them to have empathy. I can't train them to, you know, have kindness in their heart, you know, things like that. So you want to select those people in the first place. But one of the things you also need to look at and, and certainly focus on during a background check is just, you know, how committed are they to upholding the Constitution of the United States? How committed are they to upholding their oath of office? to serve people, to defend the constitution. And, you know, if you find things in, in their social media or you, you know, you, you talk to the neighbors and, you know, during a background check and, and find out that, you know, this person's, you know, in, involved in certain things that, that make you question their loyalty to their oath and their, and, and their suitability, frankly, their suitability to be a police officer, then you make sure you don't hire that person. And so the big challenge for us is not only to select the right people, hire the right people, but then to give them the training that they need to do their job well. Um, and one of the aspects of training that, that we focus on when they're brand new is just what does it mean when you put your right hand up and you swear to, to uphold the, and defend the Constitution? What does that mean? And um, so, you know, that we, we do training on that so folks actually know what they're swearing an oath to and what it means in terms of them doing their job. And that way, when you do that and you know you've trained them and they know how to do their job, that's when you can hold them accountable later on. So if they don't do their job, uh, you know it wasn't because you didn't explain well enough what their job was, that, that you know, they, they intentionally didn't do what they were supposed to do, and then you hold them accountable. So that's, that's the formula, hiring the right people, training them, holding them accountable. If, you, if we can get that right, um, we'll be we'll be okay. You know, there's always going to be a few bad apples, but I think that when the overwhelming culture of a department is one of service and integrity and, um, uh, you know, and, and fulfilling the, the police mission, uh, you've got a, you've got a real good start there. On the eve of the 20th anniversary of 9-11, you know, a day when the U.S. Capitol was one of the targets, uh, chief, looking at what's happening in Afghanistan now, are you I'm sure you're keeping a close eye on that. Are you concerned about the implications in terms of domestic security and the security of the U.S. Capitol in, in coming years, right? I mean, it's, it's it's as if you don't have enough on your plate. You've now got to think about that as well. Well, you're, you're exactly right. And um, and we are thinking about it. We've, um, you know, we, we put things in place every year on the anniversary of, uh, of 9-11 to ensure that um, if something does happen, that we're going to be able to respond adequately. Um, this is the 20th anniversary, so you know you wonder if this is going to be significant, more significant to folks or not. It is uh, something that um, you've got to be concerned about, and being concerned about something is one thing. Paying attention to it and making sure you're prepared for it is is really the more important thing. Uh, you know, uh, so we we're paying close attention to it. We're um, you know the, there are folks who 
working our intel, our uh, working with our federal partners and uh, and everybody that we should be working with to ensure that if there are any threats, if there's any chatter about any threats, that we're ready to address them. That we and and if we can stop them before they happen, that's great. But certainly being prepared for different threats is is an important part of what we need to do. And and it's it it doesn't seem to get any easier. It just it just seems like there's more and more things to worry about, more and more threats. I mean, I can certainly tell you that the threats against Congress have gone through the roof. Uh, many more this year than there were last year than than there were the year before that. Um, so uh, we we definitely are paying attention to this and because of the concern that we have. Chief, in closing, looking back at the young man who uh, gave up his dream of journalism to join the police force and the person who came out of retirement to take on this very difficult new job, what would you say to that young man about the journey you've been on and taking on this new challenge? You know, there's an old adage that um, this job was a, you had a front seat, front row seat to the greatest show on earth. And in many ways, I had no clue um, the things I would get involved with, the people that I would meet, the things that I would do. And, uh, and, and frankly, it, it has been exciting. Uh, there have been times that things were dangerous, but overall, as I look back on it, I think I, I just feel, um, so good about things that, that, um, I accomplished and, and, and not just me, when I say I accomplished, I mean, accomplished as a, as an organization, accomplished as a team. I've been on different teams, different squads, um, just the things that we've done. I look back on it and I say, this is, um, one of the best career choices that you could make. I, I, um, uh, you know, most cops, um, certainly are never going to get rich, you know, on a police officer's salary, but you make a decent living. And, and, um, it's one of the few, uh, professions where you still get a, a pension. And, and so there are some, you know, there's some benefits to it, but the fact of the matter is that, uh, this job is, is if it's, if you're suited for it, um, can just be, um, a, an amazing journey. And when I started, I, I remember, uh, in fact, I remember telling my mom and dad when I first started that uh, I was having so much fun going to work. Couldn't wait to get to work because I was having so much fun. I said, they, you know, I said, they don't even have to pay me. I'd go to work. And uh, and that's the way I felt that um, it was just so exciting, so much fun, so much working with so many great people that I was just having a great time. And when, uh, you know, a young man in his 20s, you know, going to work, doing exciting things every day, that was just that was phenomenal. So, you know, I, I had, I was enjoying it then, like every day it, as my career evolved, there were new challenges, but new, new areas of things to, to get excited about new opportunities to do different things and, and get involved with people on different projects. I just would have never believed that my career could have gone the way it did and remained as exciting and fulfilling as it did from the first days that I was starting. So um, I would I would just t tell that young man, I said, buckle up, you're in, you're in for the ride of your life. Chief Manger, thank you so much for joining me today and for this amazing conversation. Thank you, Chitra. It's been great speaking with you.
Thomas Manger was recently sworn in as the new chief of the U.S. Capitol Police. His appointment comes at a critical period in that police force's history in the wake of the devastating January 6th attacks by far-right extremist groups and supporters of former President Donald Trump. Chief Manger has served for more than 42 years in policing, including more than two decades as chief of police for two of the largest suburbs of the National Capital Region, Montgomery County, Maryland, and Fairfax County, Virginia. He has received many national and local awards for his service, and he has been elected by his peers to major national leadership positions, including president of the Major Cities Chiefs Association and vice president of the Police Executive Research Forum. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. When It Mattered is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.